Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at a historical location that also has a haunted reputation. So come with me as together we enter the strange and creepy world of the unexplained and keep history fun along the way. everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel and thank you all so much for being here. Today we are doing a listener suggestion episode about hauntings in and around Halifax, Nova Scotia. This location was suggested by our listener Callie and I wanted to give a massive shout out to Callie because not only did she suggest this location but she took the time out of her day to type a really in-depth PDF file to help me with the history and hauntings of each location. I put as much as I could into this episode from the PDF file. That's why I wanted to give her a huge shout out and thank her again so much. This episode has turned into a special one because not only is this my first official episode of 2022, I have also reached over 200,000 downloads. I am blown away because I truly never thought anyone but my parents would listen to my show. So I don't have really the words to express how grateful I am. So I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for listening. I also hope that you had a great holiday season. I know that the holidays can become quite stressful, so I hope that you enjoyed your Christmas holiday with as least stress as possible. I have just a little life update for you guys real quick before we start. Um, Number one, I finally got a new job. This is my first job since the pandemic started, and I am working on shifting my schedule around a bit so that I have time to make these episodes. I was first just working some holiday fill-in hours, so it was a little sporadic and last minute, but now I have a schedule, so I'm going to get back on track pretty quickly. I am also in the process of getting ready to move. As you guys might know, this was something that I was going to do way back in 2019, but then the pandemic started, so I had to hold off on my plans. But now I'm starting to put those plans back in motion, and don't worry, I will still be doing the podcast. I just wanted to let you guys know way in advance that this will be happening at some point this year, and I'll talk about it when I get closer. As always, I wanted to thank my Patreons. You guys help make this show possible. You guys help me out financially so that I can afford my monthly host fees, as well as helping me upgrade to new equipment and pay for the rights for the music and sound effects I use on this podcast. I have some new Patreons to thank today, and they are Carrie, Erin, Erica, Jennifer, and Carla. Thank you guys so much for signing up for my Patreon. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out the link to my page down below in the show notes. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have time, photos of the historical places I talk about on my main episodes, and you will get a thank you card and logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment, and you can cancel at any time. Leaving my show a review on iTunes is a quick and free way to help support the show. The more reviews I receive, it will help the show pop up when other people are searching for a new paranormal podcast to try. If you are listening to this on Spotify, Spotify now has a way for you to rate your favorite podcasts. Simply go to the podcast main page of your choice, click on the three white dots under the podcast logo. After you click on these dots, you will see a new screen pop up with the options to stop following, rate show, and share. If you want to rate your show, click on the words that say rate show and you can rate the podcast up to five stars. So if you would like to do that for my podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, that's enough housekeeping for me, so let's get on with this episode. I am super excited to be covering Halifax. Even though Canada is technically my neighbor to the north, I didn't know much about the history of their country. So I knew that I was going in blind, and I had so much fun learning all about the history of Canada and the locations that Callie suggested. So if you were like me in the beginning of this and don't know much about Canada's history, then you are in for a real treat. From cool facts to great tragedy, Halifax is a perfect place for ghosts to linger in every building, and we will find out why after our monstrous moment. (laughs) 
Today's monstrous moment is an evil creature that lurks in Dagger Woods. Dagger Woods is located in the province of Nova Scotia, Canada, and it has been the home for many dark legends for over 200 years. There are different ideas as to what is hiding in Dagger Woods. Some call it a hidey hinder. Others, the Daggerwoods Howler. Some have even called it the Daggerwoods Witch. According to legend, if you go out to the woods at night, you can hear the evil howl of the Heidi Hinder deep in the woods. As you stand in the dark, you can hear the howl getting closer and closer until you realize that it is coming right for you. The howls get louder and louder until you start to hear something running in the woods, leaving you no choice but to run for your life. If you make it out of the woods, consider yourself lucky, because normally people wandering in the woods have disappeared, never to be seen again. These disappearances are often blamed on the Heidi Hinder. Some people believe that the Heidi Hinder is an ancient demon from the old world. According to legend, it came over to Canada on a ship 200 years ago. It disguised itself as a human and boarded a ship of Scottish settlers that were headed to colonies in the New World. Once it arrived, it set out to hide deep in Dagger Woods. Soon after, this demon began to hunt humans at night. According to legend, it will catch a human and drag them to its lair to devour them and take their souls. It was the real-life disappearances of new settlers that first started this legend of the Heidi Hinder. While I could not find an exact description of this beast, the best description I could find is... It looks like a tall, lanky, grayish-black creature with large pointed ears and a long nose, kind of like your classic witch. It also has a large mouth with really sharp teeth, and it's said to be wearing a black robe. There is a cool song sung by the Stanfields titled Dagger Woods, and I will have a link to their song down below in the show notes, so if you want to check it out for yourself, you can. They sing about this legend, and they have an interesting twist to their song story that lumps two legends together. The first is the Heidi Hinder, and the second legend is attached to the woods that says a man went crazy and killed his wife and kids with a pearl handle knife. After this, he fled into the woods, and when he got deep enough, his rage awakened an ancient evil that consumed him, turning him into the monster that now stalks the woods. The song takes both the legends, the Heidi Hinder legend and the man who killed his wife and kids legend, and makes it sound like the man was blamed for the killings of the family, but in fact it was the Heidi Hinder, and no one would believe the man. Maybe an even darker twist would be that maybe it was the man, but the Heidi Hinder took over his body to do the evil task and left him alone in the woods with no memory of the attack. Either way, the legend of the Heidi Hinder still goes strong today, and there have been some documented claims of people who have said to have seen a dark figure moving in the tree line, hear its evil howls at night, and hear something large running in the woods directly toward them. There is also a strange account of people seeing floating burning barrels off in the distance. Whatever the truth is, the woods are said to give off a very creepy vibe and people for the most part steer clear of Dagger Woods. But if you are brave enough to visit, you might just experience the terrifying Heidi Hinder. <laughs> Is a beautiful modern city located in the province of Nova Scotia, Canada. It is full of historical sites and it has a ton of maritime history because of its important seaport. Halifax experienced two major tragedies in the early 1900s. One, the sinking of a famous ship, and the other, the biggest man-made explosion before the nuclear bomb was ever invented. Halifax is a super haunted city, and I have a lot of ghosts to talk about, but before I do, I have a lot of history to cover. First, I'm going to do the overall history of Canada, and then I'm going to focus on the history of Halifax. So I hope you guys are ready for an awesome history lesson, because as you know how we do things here at Historically Haunted, to understand the ghost, we must first understand the history.
the first to live in Canada were the Aboriginal peoples. There were many different groups that lived off the land and the plants and animals in their areas determined the foods they ate, tools they made, and the types of homes that they built. Some of these groups were hunter-gatherers, such as the Cree and the Diné of the Northwest. The Sioux lived a nomadic life because they followed the bison herds. The Inuit in the Arctic North hunted seals, walruses, whales, and caribou. In the Great Lakes region, the Huron-Windet were farmers and hunters. The first European settlers to reach Canada were the Vikings led by Leif Erikson. The Vikings settled on Greenland 1,000 years ago, and they reached the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador. In the 1960s, the remains of a Norse settlement was discovered in the northernmost tip of the island of Newfoundland. Archaeologists determined that the age of the settlement was about 1,000 years old. Today, it's called Lansen Meadows, and it is a World Heritage Site. The first European explorer to map the Atlantic coast coastline of Canada was John Cabot. He claimed Newfoundland for England in 1497, but the English did not begin settling there until 1610. Around this time, the French were also interested in the New World. Jack Cartier led three voyages between 1534 and 1542. He explored and mapped the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River. Cartier claimed the region for King Francis I of France. While he was mapping the area, two Iroquoian guides that they had with them were overheard using the word for village, which is is Canada. This inspired the name Canada, and the name Canada was used on the maps around 1550. The first European settlement north of Florida was started by French explorers Pierre de Monti and Samuel de Champlain in 1604. They first chose St. Croix Island, which is a part of Maine in the United States today. Then they moved to Port Royal in Acadia, now Nova Scotia. Champlain constructed a fortress in 1608 at Quebec City, and it became the capital of New France. Champlain constructed a fortress in 1608 at Quebec City, and it became the capital of New France. The climate was very tough on the colonists, and they struggled to survive at first. Champlain made an alliance with the local Aboriginal people, and they cooperated with France and helped the colonists with the beaver fur trade. The fur trade was an important part of their economy. The French slowly began to move west from the St. Lawrence coast to the Great Lakes and then down the Mississippi River. They claimed much of the middle of North America, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. The British finally returned to the region when Henry Hudson discovered Hudson Bay in 1610. The fur trade was valued by the British as well as the French and Aboriginal groups. Britain founded the Hudson Bay Company in 1670 and the company quickly established a fur trading business for England. There was conflict between France and England with the fur wars starting in 1613 and ended with the French and Indian War in 1763. The Treaty of Paris had France turn over Canada to the British. When the Revolutionary War started in America in 1776, many Loyalist families fled north to Quebec. This caused a fast and large increase of British elites who brought with them English influence and the English language to the population of Quebec. The French population were concerned about being able to keep their culture and lifestyle. To try to ease the concerns, Britain decided to split Quebec into two colonies in 1791. Upper Canada was for the English and Lower Canada was for the French. Each colony had its own government, but the king assigned councils with executive powers. By the 1830s, an organized group called the Reformers began protesting against the wealthy British British-born landlords who were favored by the governor. The reformers participated in many small armed rebellions. Lord Durham, an English politician, was sent to Canada in 1838 to be governor of Upper and Lower Canada. He united them into one colony and governed it by a British-style parliamentary system. Britain passed the Act of Union in 1841, creating the United Province of Canada. The Act also created a joint parliament which attempted to give an equal number of seats to the English and French Canadians. The British government agreed to choose the most popular leaders from each community. During the middle of the 19th century, Great Britain was more interested in expanding its empire in Asia and India, losing interest in Canada. This allowed Canada's politicians to find their own solutions for their political unrest. From 1864 to 1867, representatives from the province of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick worked to create a new country. They established two levels of government 
the federal and the provincial. Two new provinces were created out of the province of Canada. They were Ontario and Quebec. The new country was called the Dominion of Canada. Ottawa became the new capital and the first prime minister was Sir John Macdonald. Canada wasn't totally independent from Great Britain. New provinces were added during the late 1800s. Canada's population grew during an economic growth in the 1890s and early 1900s. Canada fought alongside Great Britain against Germany in World War I. In 1931, the United Kingdom Parliament gave legal recognition to Australia, Canada, Irish Free State, Newfoundland, New Zealand, and South Africa with the Statute of Westminster. Canada was an ally of Great Britain once again during World War II. The Canadian flag was adopted in 1965, and the World's Fair was held in Montreal in 1967, which was also Canada's centennial. Canada has hosted the Olympic Games three times. The 1976 Summer Olympics were held in Montreal, the Winter Olympics were held in 1988 with Calgary being the host city, and in 2010 they hosted another other Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. Now that I have done a very quick overview of Canada's history, I wanted to talk about Nova Scotia since many of the hauntings I will be talking about are located here. If you want an in-depth look at Canadian history, I have links to all of my sources down below that will go more in-depth into the history of Canada. So let's get into the history of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was one of the four original provinces of Canada and it is the second smallest Canadian province almost completely surrounded by water. It is connected to the province of New Brunswick with a small piece of land. It also includes Cape Breton Island. The population of the province is about 1 million today and its capital is Halifax. The British began the settlement in 1746. Colonel Edward Cornwallis chose a large hill for a fort that allowed the British to defend the harbor. The wooden guardhouse was built on top of the hill. Today it's called Citadel Hill. The first settlers built their homes around the base of the hill closer to the water. The fort has been rebuilt three different times. The latest fort was completed in 1856. The port of Halifax was important for exporting fish and timber products. Later, grain from the prairies was exported from here as well. Sir Samuel Cunard, who founded the Cunard Line, was born here on November 21, 1787. He made his fortune in Halifax, which allowed him to start his shipping company. The company's ships were in competition with the White Star Line. If you have listened to my Queen Mary episode, that's episode number 37, I cover the history of both companies there. Halifax and the Cunard Line are part of the story of the Titanic tragedy that happened on April 15, 1912. When news that the RMS Titanic of the White Star Line had struck an iceberg, officials in New York thought that the ship might be able to sail to Halifax. It was the closest port large enough to manage the ship. Trains carrying relatives and immigration officials traveled from New York to Halifax to await the ship. Shortly after the Titanic sunk, the Cunard Line RMS Carpathia was the first ship to reach the site and rescue over 700 people. The White Star Line hired four ships to recover the dead. The estimate is that between 316 and 337 bodies were recovered. 125 were buried at sea, while the rest were brought back to the Halifax port in unloaded on the docks. Forty members of the Funeral Directors Association of Maritime Provinces were there to process the victims. 150 victims were buried in three cemeteries in Halifax. 121 were buried at Fairview Lawn Cemetery, 19 at Mount Olivet Catholic Cemetery, and 10 at the Baron de Hearst Jewish Cemetery. Approximately 59 bodies were claimed and taken to be buried elsewhere. The sinking of the Titanic was considered to be a horrible tragedy for the time, but but just five years later, a terrible tragedy would strike Halifax itself. On December 6, 1917, Halifax experienced the largest man-made non-nuclear explosion in history. On the morning of the 6th, the captain of the SS Emu was in a rush. The day before, they were late loading a cargo of coal and could not leave the evening before due to submarine nets that had been raised. The submarine nets were added during World War I in an attempt to stop German U-boats from entering the harbor. When dawn broke on the 6th, they were a day behind schedule, so the captain was trying to make up time. As he was leaving the harbor, he entered the narrows of the harbor going faster than the posted five knots. 
As the emo entered the narrowest part, it realized that there was a ship coming directly toward it. The ship was the SS Clara, and it was coming into the harbor on the wrong side. Boats going to the ocean are supposed to exit on the right, and boats coming into the harbor through the narrows are supposed to be on the left. The emu was forced to move toward the left to get out of the way of the SS Clara. Now the emu was directly in the center of the strait. The captain was forced to move to the far left again when a tugboat was coming directly toward them. Now the emu was traveling on the far left, still going too fast. It was then that the SS Emo noticed she was headed straight for the SS Mont Blanc. The Mont Blanc had a cargo for the war effort and it was packed full of 2,925 metric tons of explosives. It had on board TNT, gun cotton, and barrels and barrels of benzol and picric acid. The SS Mont Blanc saw the SS Emo and frantically signaled warnings, but for whatever reason, the Emo refused to yield. They played chicken until both ships cut their engines. Then the SS Mont Blanc tried to steer out of the way of the Emo. This might have worked, except the Emo decided to turn on its engines at exactly the wrong moment, and the front end of the ship drifted right into the side of the Mont Blanc damaging both ships. After this, the Emo cut its engines yet again. A few minutes after the crash, both ships drifted in the water. Tragedy would have been avoided if it wasn't for the Emo turning back on its engines and trying to steer away from the Mont Blanc. This caused both ships to rub against each other. This metal-on-metal -metal scraping caused sparks to fly, and the sparks caught the now-spilled barrels of benzol on fire in the hull of the SS Mont Blanc. The crew of the SS Mont Blanc could do nothing to put out the fire, so they abandoned ship. As the crew abandoned ship, they yelled to anyone who could hear on the shore to get as far away from the ship as possible because they knew it would explode. With no one to steer her, the SS Mont Blanc drifted to the shores of Halifax. The pillar of smoke from the burning ship could be seen from miles around, and this drew people of the town down to the shore and to their windows to watch the drama. This would be a deadly mistake. At 9.04 and 35 seconds, the SS Mont Blanc exploded. The blast was so large that it flattened towns, forests, and warehouses. Around 1,600 people were killed instantly. And that's not all. The blast then created a six-foot tsunami. The tsunami picked up ships and washed them directly into town. The wave killed initial survivors of the blast in low-lying areas. After the water receded, fires began to burn out of control. The survivors of the blast thought that this explosion was caused by war, and soldiers ran to their posts to defend the mainland. But by the afternoon, people realized the truth behind the explosion. To make matters even worse, a horrible blizzard started the next day that killed people who were now homeless. The blizzard also stopped much-needed supplies from getting to the city. The damage was so bad that any buildings left standing became hospitals or a morgue or sometimes both. Over 2,000 people died and 9,000 were injured due to the explosion. This blast forced Canada to make new laws for shipping hazardous and flammable materials. Many people became blind during the blast because many were standing at their glass windows to watch the burning ship at the time of the explosion. Because of this, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind was created. This disaster also showed that services provided by groups like the Red Cross were needed for civilians and not just during war times. After the blast, Canadians worked to rebuild Halifax and the surrounding area. Immediately after the explosion, Boston sent aid and it arrived just before the blizzard started. The supplies was greatly needed and as a thank you, Halifax sends Boston a Christmas tree every year for their town square and they still do this today. The Halifax explosion was the worst man-made explosion in history until the two nuclear bombs were dropped during World War II. After the Halifax explosion, more than 1,500 buildings were destroyed and 12,000 buildings were damaged in the blast. 25,000 people became homeless instantly. Even with this great tragedy, the citizens of Halifax were able to come together and rebuild the town and start the long road to recovery. During World War II, Halifax was an important port for ships taking munitions and supplies across the Atlantic to Western Europe. 
After the war, Nova Scotia's main economy was fishing and mining of coal. After those industries declined, tourism became very important to the economy. Today, there are many things for visitors to do in Nova Scotia. The Cabot Trail on Cape Breton Island takes you along the coastline. There are many small towns and attractions to visit along the way. The trail also goes through Cape Breton Highlands National Park. You might choose to start and finish your drive in Alexander Graham Bell's hometown of Baddock. The various culture of people who settled in these provinces over the years are celebrated today through festivals and their arts and crafts. You can also find traditions of the Mi'kmaq, the Aboriginal people who were first living here. The other cultures celebrated here are French Arcadian, African Nova Scotian, and the Gaelic communities. The entire province offers sandy beaches, lighthouses, hikes, national parks, and many seaside towns to explore. Enjoy a variety of seafood, including lobsters, scallops, mussels, and salmon. The Bay of Fundy has the highest recorded tides in the world, and the Cliffs of Fundy, the UNESCO Global Geopark, offers evidence of how the supercontinent Pangaea was formed three million years ago and then one million years ago broke apart. There are other museums and many heritage sites that you can visit as well. And now that you too know the history of Nova Scotia, it won't come as a shock to hear that one of the more popular things to do is go on ghost tours. ton of haunted buildings to talk about today and I'm very excited to get started so we are just going to jump into our ghost tour. The first haunted building on our tour is the Five Fishermen's Restaurant. The building that is today, the Five Fishermen's Restaurant, was first a schoolhouse built in 1817 by the St. Paul's Anglican Church. This church is still located across the street and it is the oldest building in Halifax built in 1750. The building that houses Five Fishermen's Restaurant started as a school in 1818. The school's goal was to provide a free education for the poor and had a heavy focus on religion. The school was the first in Canada to offer a free education and the building is designated as the first national school. The building is also a protected heritage site. Eventually the school had to move to a new building because because the need for education grew. Anna Leon Owens purchased the property to create the Halifax Victorian School of Arts and it opened its doors in 1887. If her name sounds familiar to you, that's because she is the author of Anna and the King of Siam. This book turned into a Broadway musical that then later became an Academy Award-winning movie called The King and I. The book she wrote is about her real-life experience being the governess to the children of the King of Siam. The art school became successful and later moved to a larger campus. The school is still going strong and it's now called the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. After the art school left, the building was bought by the Snow family in the early 1900s. The family decided to open the building as a mortuary and it became John and Snow Company Funeral Home. In the beginning, the business was steady, but the Snow family could never have imagined the tragedy that was coming or that they would play a large role in two major disasters. The first was the sinking of the Titanic. After the bodies were brought back to Halifax, many were brought to the Snow's funeral home while they waited for family members to make final arrangements. Only five years after the sinking of the Titanic, tragedy struck the very city the building was in. As I discussed in the history portion, the Halifax explosion was a major catastrophe that killed over 2,000 people. Any building left standing was used as a makeshift morgue or hospital. The funeral home went into emergency mode with bodies stacking up inside and outside of the building. There's actually a very somber picture that I'm going to post on my Patreon page of the funeral home that shows rows and rows of coffins that are stacked three high surrounding the building and going all the way down the street. It's really sad to look at when you see that photo and it definitely puts the explosion in perspective. After this, the building changed hands and uses over the years. It was even once used as a warehouse. In the 1970s, the building was refurbished and in 1975, it opened as the Five 
Fisherman's Restaurant. I looked at some reviews online and it almost has five stars and the pictures of the food look delicious and honestly, the photos made me quite hungry. While I'm sure that the food is great, it's not the only reason that people come to this restaurant. With its dark past, it won't come as a shock to hear that it's also super haunted. In fact, the restaurant's own website is not afraid to talk about the ghosts. After the restaurant first opened, it did not take long for staff members to have several strange paranormal experiences. Most of the activity occurs when the restaurant is about to open or as it is closing for the night, but some of the activity has even happened during peak hours. Staff members have claimed to hear disembodied footsteps all throughout the restaurant when they know that they are the only ones left in the building. Napkins that have silverware on them have been known to slide off of tables on their own, and glasses have flown off the shelves and shattered on multiple occasions. The restaurant has many sinks in the building, and these sinks will often turn on on their own. The sound of disembodied voices in empty rooms have also been heard on multiple occasions. Some have even heard their own names being whispered in their ear or being called from empty rooms. Another frequent claim from staff is that they feel like something icy passes right through their bodies as they're standing still. Others have walked into random cold spots on very hot days. The restaurant also is a hot spot for apparitions and with the building's history, it's not really surprising. I came across a creepy story about a staff member who came to work at three o'clock in the afternoon tasked with setting up the salad bar before they opened at five o'clock. He had a large tray in his hands and he just left the second floor to go down to the first floor when he heard a loud crash. He continued to the salad bar and put down his tray and went back up to the second floor to see what caused the noise. As he looked around, he noticed that there was a broken ashtray on the floor behind the bar. He bent down to pick up the ashtray and when he stood up, he was directly facing into a mirror that was behind the bar. When he glanced up into the mirror, he saw a reflection of a tall man with gray hair in an early 1900s long black coat walking away from him down the aisle of tables. This made the staff member jump and he spun around to see who was inside the restaurant with him. But when he turned, there was no one there. He thought he might have imagined it, so he went back to work and told no one about it. A few years later, another staff member was inside the restaurant at three o'clock and he was near the salad bar on the phone taking a reservation. While he was on the phone, he glanced up on the landing of the stairs and he saw a tall man with gray hair in a long black coat. He told the man that he will be right with them as he finished the phone call. Then he looked up to see what the man wanted, but there was no one there. After this, he realized that no one should be in the building anyway because they were not open yet. He looked around in all the rooms and found no one and the front door was still locked. Later that night, he told the other workers what he saw and the same waiter who had that experience a few years ago was working that night. When he overheard the story, they both came to the realization that they had both seen the same ghost. A lot of activity happens inside the private dining room known as the captain's quarters. One staff member was cleaning up for the night. When he passed the room, he heard a man and woman arguing. He entered to tell them that they had to leave and found it completely empty and the voices stopped as soon as he entered the room. Another time, a server was the last person inside the restaurant and was closing for the night. She was going from room to room, turning off lights when she saw someone enter the captain's quarters. She went into the room to tell them to leave, but the room was completely empty. She knew no one could have exited because there's only one way in and out and she had her eye on the door the whole time. The bathrooms are haunted as well. Not only do the sinks like to turn on and off on their own, but one time a staff member was checking the bathrooms at the end of the night. When she entered the woman's restroom, she saw a little girl. She was in period dress about the early 1900s, and the little girl looked extremely sad and confused. She also looked like she wanted to communicate with the staff member, but just as she looked like she was going to say something, the little girl vanished before the staff member's very eyes. During closing time in the main dining room, work staff have reported the sound of tapping on empty tables and even on the windows. A gray mist has also been seen floating around the rooms and even gliding up and down the grand staircase. There are also stories of a ghost of a man who was believed to have worked in the building when it was a funeral home. This spirit is not a pleasant one. 
According to legend, he likes to scare female staff members while they are inside the break room. It's believed that this ghost was a mortician who stole valuables from the deceased. He has also been known for cornering female workers and demanding for their valuables in their purse before he vanishes. One more creepy story to leave you with from the five fishermen. One sold out night, a waitress was showing a group to their table. She stopped by the salad bar to explain all that was offered when she suddenly felt something brush hard against her face. She didn't see any reason for this and continued helping the group. When she got back to the front, another staff member asked her what had happened. She didn't understand until she looked in a mirror to see a red handprint on her cheek. While it looked like she had been slapped, she claims that it did not feel like it was aggressive at the time it happened. With the building being used to house hundreds of dead for two major tragedies, it would make sense for the building to be full of lost souls. Ghost hunters and mediums who have gone to the restaurant to investigate at night have reported the feeling of restlessness and confusion from the spirits. There are many spirits who linger inside the building, so if you ever go to the Five Fishermen's Restaurant, you might end up getting more than just a culinary experience. We don't have to go far for our next location. Right across the street is St. Paul's Church. The church was founded in 1749 and plans for construction for the church building began soon after. In early 1750, construction began and on September 2nd, 1750, the church opened its doors with Reverend William Tuddy as the first minister. During the French and Indian War, two well-known Nova Scotians were buried here, Governor Charles Lawrence and Catholic priest Perry Millard. During the American Revolutionary War, several prominent British officers were buried at the church. Following the Revolutionary War, the church was given the bishop's seat for the Diocese of Nova Scotia in 1787. St. Paul's Church became the first official Anglican cathedral outside of Great Britain. It served as a cathedral from 1787 to 1864. Throughout the church's history, it served as a place to honor Nova Scotians. The World War I doorway arch was engraved with the names of Nova Scotians who died while fighting in this war. The church also has one of the most famous legends from the Halifax explosion. If you look at one of the windows in the church, you will see a black silhouette of the head of a man. This is known as the ghost window. There are different legends attached to this window. One says that at the time of the Halifax explosion, the deacon of the church was standing directly in front of the window, but standing sideways. When the explosion happened, it said that the heat and the concussion of the blast broke the window in the shape of the clergyman's head. Other stories have him being blown out through the window during the explosion. After the explosion, it is said that the profile was forever etched into the glass. Another version of the legend says that a young organist was practicing in the church at the time of the blast. When the explosion reached the church, he was decapitated by the blast and his head flew through the window. Yet another version of the story says that a severed head of a sailor from the blast zone flew all the way to the church and flew through the window. No matter which legend is told, each one ends with the church that has tried to repair the window several times, but no matter how many times it's replaced, the dark shadow of a head always reappears, a dark reminder of the Halifax explosion. While we may never know if the legend of the window is true or not, the building did suffer major damage during the explosion. The church suffered blown out windows and major damage to its roof. Also, also, a piece of a window frame from a building a few miles away stuck into one of the walls above the entryway. It is still there today and there is a plaque calling it a relic of the explosion. Our next location is the Halifax Citadel. The Halifax Citadel is the last of four British forts that were built on a hill overlooking the harbor. The fort that's still there today was finished in 1856. During the middle of the Victorian era, the Citadel was the headquarters for two infantry regiments for the Halifax garrison. Two of these units were the 78th Highland Regiment of Foot and the 3rd Brigade Royal Artillery. Today, visitors can experience living history demonstrations, which include firing of the noon gun, maneuvers by infantry dressed in 19th century uniforms, concerts by the pipes and drums of the 78th Highland Regiment, and demonstrations by soldiers' wives. There are also guided historical tours and ghost tours. For the 70-minute ghost tour, visitors are led by candlelight through tunnels, prison cells, and other parts of the fort. Their website also says that you will hear true accounts of unexplained events in the actual locations. And I have a link to their website down below 
below in the show notes under my sources section. With the Citadel having 200 years of history, it's not really surprising to find out that there are a few ghost stories. There are hauntings found all over the Citadel grounds. From your usual hauntings like disembodied voices, footsteps, cold spots, opening and closing of doors, to the feeling of never being alone, this place has it all, including a feeling of dread down in the dungeons. Actually, the Citadel staff researched hauntings found here, and they were able to gather details of 36 provable ghost stories on the grounds. With that many ghost stories to tell, I cannot cover all of them in this episode, but I'm going to try to talk about most of the more well-known ghost stories that I could find. One of the most famous is The Grey Lady. The Legend of the Grey Lady is one of those ghost stories that have multiple different backstories. Our listener who suggested this episode, Callie, told me a true and tragic story of who this ghost could be. The ghost could be that of Miss Cassie Allen. On the day she was to be wed, her fiancé, who was a soldier at the fort, killed himself for unknown reasons. When Cassie heard the news, she was already in her wedding dress waiting for him to arrive so that she could walk down the aisle. When she was told what happened, she became hysterical and she never was able to move on. Even in death, her ghost roams the citadel still looking for her beloved fiance. I found another version of who the gray lady could be from a book titled Ghosts and Folklore of the Halifax Citadel written by Harold R. Thompson. When Thompson began working at the fort, he started to hear a lot of ghost stories, so he started to compile all the ghost stories at the Citadel, and then he put them into this book. In his book, he also talks of the Grey Lady and the legend of Cassie Allen, but he had also heard a different legend that might point to the Grey Lady being someone else. According to this version of the tale, on March 23rd, 1889, the Cavalier building caught fire. The Cavalier building was used as the main barracks for housing the soldiers at the Citadel. The fire was caused by a spark from one of the chimneys that caught the dry roof on fire. The fire was discovered at 7 o'clock in the evening and it soon burned out of control. The entire third floor of the building was destroyed and according to legend, the wife of a sergeant was tragically killed in the fire. After it became a historical site in 1956, renovations were done to the Citadel and finished in the 1990s. When the renovations were done on the Cavalier building, apparitions of the Grey Lady started to become very frequent. And while no one knows for sure who the Grey Lady is, she is still a famous ghost at the Citadel. When she is seen, she is usually in a gray Victorian style dress. However, there are accounts of her being in a white dress as well. Her body is also said to be colorless as if you are looking at a black and white picture. She has been known to sit in a rocking chair on the third story porch. Tour guides and guests have claimed to hear and see the rocking chair moving on its own. Today, the third floor of the Cavalier building is used as office spaces. One night, very late, a security attendant was doing his round when he saw a dim light in one of the third-story windows. As he stared at the light, a dark silhouette of a woman appeared. When he reached the third floor, he found the door was locked like it always is once everyone has left for the evening. He unlocked the door and entered the hallway, calling out to see if anyone was there. There was no answer. He continued on to the office with the lit window, but discovered that the office was dark and empty. This happened to this man several times while he worked here. Every time he saw the silhouette in the window, with a light on, he would go to investigate and find the office always dark and empty. Other staff members have reported strange paranormal activity on the third floor, hearing footsteps in the hall when no one else is there, random cold spots, and the scent of perfume. Many staff members also report the feeling of never being alone as they walk in the empty corridors on the third floor. The Grey Lady is not stuck in the Cavalier building because many staff members and security guards have claimed to see her wandering the grounds. The Grey Lady is not the only ghost that haunts the Cavalier building. There is said to be a ghost of a Canadian soldier in a World War II uniform seen on the first floor porch. He has been known to walk along the porch to the end of the building. Then he turns around and walks back to where he started. Next, he faces the wall and walks directly into it and disappears.
At some point in the Cavalier building's history, there was a spiral staircase that went from the second floor to the third floor. This staircase led soldiers to a platform that housed a gun. This staircase has now been encased in stone and mortar and can no longer be used. However, people claim to hear the sound of footsteps going up and down a spiral staircase. You can actually still see a part of the staircase today. It's located in the room that is now used as the Army Museum. Another well-known ghost at the Citadel is known as the theater ghost. When Callie sent me the PDF file for these haunted locations, she did such a great job at explaining this ghost story, so I'm actually just going to read it word for word because I don't know how anyone could tell this story better. Inside the Tides of History Theater on the grounds of the Citadel, many visitors and staff have reported hearing people behind them, feeling someone grab them, touch them, and breathe on them. However, one staff member had an experience so horrifying that she couldn't stay. She was working her shift during the day and as tourists filed out of the theater, she watched the cameras to make sure that nobody remained. She saw a man standing in there, so she got up to go get him. When she entered the theater, she saw nobody. So she went back to the desk and saw him there again on the monitors. She got up and went into the theater, called out to the man, couldn't see him or anybody, and nobody answered. She went back to the desk and looked at the monitors and the crazed face of a man was directly in the camera staring at her. She knew then that this could not be a human man as the camera is placed high up on a wall to give a good view of the entire room. Like I said, I could never have said that story any better and also that story is very creepy. If that really happened, that's really scary. I don't know what I'd do personally. The last ghost story I will talk about from this location is known as the Sergeant in the Well. In 1850, there was a Sergeant Major who had a reputation for being a real, mm, how else do I put this in the nicest way possible? Well, I'm just gonna say it, he was a straight up jerk. He was known for being brutally tough to his whole regiment, but he particularly began to pick on a certain private. He would constantly bully this man from morning until night. In the winter of 1850, a fire began in the Old North Barracks located just outside of the Citadel's walls. This barracks was a fully wooden structure, so the flames spread quickly, and it wasn't too long before the flames reached civilian homes. During the fire, there was a mad scramble to put the flames out, with soldiers and civilians alike using the Citadel's wells. In the end, about 40 homes burned and the barracks burned completely to the ground. In the morning when roll call was taken, they noticed that the sergeant major and the bullied private were both missing. Soon after, they were both discovered missing. The private was spotted heading out of the area on one of the main roads that would take him to New Brunswick and eventually to Maine. The sergeant major could not be found. A year later, a soldier was getting water out of the well when the bucket became stuck. He asked one of his friends to help him and together they pulled hard on the rope and eventually freed the bucket. However, when the bucket reached the top, the men noticed that there was an arm entangled in the rope. They discovered that the decomposed body of the sergeant major who went missing last year was in the well the whole time. While no one knows for sure what happened, some believe that the private got his revenge in all of the chaos of the fire. Unsurprisingly, the well grew out of favor with the soldiers after this discovery, and that would be me too because after I read this story, I just thought, ew, I know that sounds so cliche to say, but that that's really gross. Ever since the sergeant's death, a figure of a color sergeant has been seen on the North Parade Square near where the old well used to be. While the fort was still in operation, his ghost was often mistaken for a member of the military. That is, until soldiers would approach him and he would vanish before their eyes. Our next location is the Government House. The Government House is located at 1451 Barrington Street in Halifax. It is the oldest official residence in Canada. It was originally built for Sir John Wetworth, the governor of the colony of Nova Scotia. Construction lasted from 1799 to 1805. The building was designated a Canadian National Historic Site in 1982. One of the most prominent ghosts seen at the Government House is Joseph Howe. He is one of Nova Scotia 
Scotia's most popular politicians and served as Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. Sadly, he died only three weeks after beginning his term. He only worked from May 10, 1873 until June 1, 1873, and he died at the age of 68. Strangely enough, I could not find the cause of death, so I'm not really sure what happened to him, but back in the 1800s, it could have been anything. In its 216-year history, Government House has hosted over a dozen royal visitors, from King George V to the Queen Mother to Queen Elizabeth II. Government House was also used as a compound post to deal with the terrible Halifax explosion. Today, Government House is the official residence of Nova Scotia's Lieutenant Governor. The Lieutenant Governor is the representative of Canada's Head of State, Queen Elizabeth II. The current Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia is the Honorable Arthur J. LeBlanc. People who work in the Government House believe that there are a few spirits hanging around. One of the most famous is the ghost of Joseph Howe. He likes to visit the security officers at night, and on one occasion, he even alerted the guards of a car accident that had taken place outside. Our listener Callie has even had a paranormal experience while working inside the government house. During one of her shifts, she entered the kitchens and she said she felt like someone was following her. She turned around to see all of the automatic paper towel dispensers turn on one by one as if someone was walking in front of them toward her. That is a really cool paranormal experience and pretty creepy, but thank you so much, Callie, for sharing that with us. I looked around online to see if I could find any more paranormal experience inside the government house, and I could just find the usual, like opening and closing of doors, disembodied footsteps, strange sounds, and the moving of objects. As I mentioned in the history section, 150 victims of the Titanic disaster are buried in three cemeteries in Halifax, Fairview Lawn Cemetery, Mount Olivet Catholic Cemetery, and Baron de Hearst Jewish Cemetery. All of the headstones were paid for by the White Star Line. 121 victims were buried at Fairview Lawn. The tombstones were arranged in the pattern to look like the outline of a hull of a ship. The inscriptions on the headstones vary. If a victim was unable to be identified, the date of April 15, 1912, and a marker number was inscribed. The number refers to the list that was made as the bodies were recovered. Some of these markers do include a name, and others have more details inscribed. For example, one headstone added this information, quote, he remained at his post of duty, seeking to save others, regardless of his own life, and went down with the ship. There is also a grave of the unknown child. The crew of the Mackie Bennett, which had pulled the toddler from the ocean, paid for his burial when no one came forward to claim the child. The marker reads, Erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster to the Titanic, April 15, 1912. Through DNA testing, the child was identified in 2002 as Sidney Leslie Goodwin, 19 months old. He was an English child, and his family sadly also perished in the disaster. Visitors leave flowers and teddy bears for the child to this day. The graves at the Baron de Hirsch Cemetery and Mount Olivet Cemetery can be found grouped together at each cemetery. The markers are inscribed with the same information as the ones at the Fairview Lawn Cemetery. All three of these cemeteries have a haunted reputation. There have been mediums who have gone to these cemeteries, and they report a heavy presence and a feeling of sorrow, especially near the Titanic graves. There have been many ghost tours and ghost hunts that have happened at these graveyards, and these groups have reported heavy paranormal activity, mostly reported as being restless energy as if the souls are lost. And that kind of energy would make sense after a tragedy like the Titanic. Our next location is the Chibucto School. Now, I found a variety of dates for when the school was built. Each article I went to had a different date, but what I could find was it was built sometime between the 1800s and early 1900s. The school was damaged during the Halifax explosion, but the building was intact enough to be used as first a triage and first aid center. Center, but soon it was used as a morgue and then a funeral home. When I was doing my research, I came across a couple of different articles that said that some students and teachers did die 
in the Halifax explosion at the school. And then I found articles saying that no one died at the school. They were just hurt. And after they were looked at, the students were sent away so the school could be used as a hospital and morgue later that same evening. Because I've never been to Nova Scotia before and there are so many different stories online, I don't know if people actually died in the building during the explosion. However, one thing I know to be 100% true is that it was used as a triage center and then later a morgue. Sometime after the bodies were taken care of, the school was able to reopen until it closed for good in 1975. Today, the building is being used as the Maritime Conservatory of Performing Arts. Ever since the Halifax explosion, people have reported heavy paranormal activity. People have reported the sounds of disembodied voices, footsteps, strange smells, and cold spots all throughout the building. There are many apparitions that have been seen in the school as well. A ghost of a nun has been seen walking the halls, and she looks like she's tending to patients. Ghosts of children playing and running through the halls have been seen and heard, along with the sound of bouncing balls have been heard as if they are bouncing down the hallway, but when people go to look, they don't find anything. The ghosts in the school also enjoy moving objects, such as papers, chalk, and Cares. For our last location, I'm going to leave you with a good old-fashioned ghost story. The Northumberland Strait has been home to a ghost story for over 100 years. It's said on foggy nights, if you look out to the water, you might spot a three-mast ship emerge from the fog. It doesn't take long for you to realize that this is not your average ship. This ship is on fire and it's moving at incredible speeds. Just as you realize what you are seeing, the ship will vanish without a trace. This ship is known as the ghost ship of the Northumberland Strait. The ghost ship appears in different forms. Sometimes it's described as a three-mast square rigger, and other times it's a four-mast topsail schooner. How the ship is on fire varies as well. Sometimes it's just the mast and riggings, other times, it's the whole ship. When the ship is seen, another common report is that you can see men and dogs frantically running along the deck before the whole ship vanishes. On one famous account, the sighting of this ship looked so real that a bunch of men actually hopped into a rowboat and went out to see if they could save anyone. As they were still rowing toward the flaming ship, it disappeared into the mist, never to be seen again. If you're brave enough to try to see this ship on your own, the best time is spring and fall. However, the ship has been seen at all times of the year, including when the strait is icebound. Most of these sightings occur at night or in the hours just before daybreak. This ghost ship is thought to be an omen of bad storms approaching. Ever since there have been sightings of this ghost ship, people have tried to explain it. In 1905, New Brunswick scientist named William Francis Gainog believed it could have been electrical. This occurrence is known as St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire is when the atmosphere becomes heavily charged and little bursts of electricity are discharged from pointed objects. This often occurs on masts and spars of ships. However, St. Elmo's fire is rare and scientists don't really explain how a giant ship disappears as fast as it appears. Other explanations are more supernatural. For instance, there have been multiple shipwrecks in the area since the 1700s. Some believe that this is a ship that is replaying its last moments before it sunk. For instance, this could be the ship named the SS Kalbum. This ship was lost in a bad storm in 1838. This apparition has also been thought to be the ghost ship of the Isabel. She left for South Africa in 1868 and was last spotted by a lighthouse keeper at Amet Island, but she was never seen again. Other legends say it could be a pirate ship that sunk. According to this legend, a drunken brawl began below deck. During the fight, a lantern was knocked over and the whole ship was set on fire. Whatever the cause, this ghost ship is just another example of the many hauntings found in and around Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thank you all so much for joining me today as we discuss the hauntings and history found around Nova Scotia, Canada. I had so much fun covering this topic and I hope that you guys enjoyed all the history and lore surrounding the city. A huge shout out to Callie for sending me over that PDF file. This made it so much easier for me to pinpoint exactly which haunted locations to cover and I also really enjoyed hearing about your personal paranormal experience. If anyone would like to find out more information about historically haunted and having a way to keep up with what I'm 
doing for new projects, you can follow me on Instagram. Whoops, and I will not bump my microphone. <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and links to all of those are down below in the show notes. I will also have a link to my Patreon page down below in the show notes as well. I will be posting a lot of historical photos from the Halifax explosion and other areas around Nova Scotia. So I will be posting those very soon on my Patreon page. And I have another bonus episode coming out probably next week. So stay tuned for that if you are a Patreon member. The last two Patreon episodes I made was the history of the Northern Lights, also known as the Aurora Borealis. And then I also covered the history of dragons recently. So that was quite fun to do. Also, just a reminder, the best way to get in touch with me is my email. Facebook and Instagram messenger has been bothering me to no end lately, and I'm pretty sure I'm about to give up on them. So if you really do want to get in contact with me, please use my email. It is historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. Gmail just makes everything so much simpler. It makes it so I don't lose things. I can't lose messages as easy. So I'm just trying to streamline my process where people can email me to just say hi, and you can also email me a personal paranormal story that I will be reading aloud um, soon. I will be doing another listeners episode probably in February if everything goes according to plan. Once again, thank you all so much for joining me today. I hope that you guys have a great couple of weeks and I will see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Bye everyone! I have never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, one in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. 